Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. In 2010, when genre terms like post-dubstep were bandied around freely, James Blake established himself as an innovative producer with a love of jazz chords and the tendency to mask his own vocals with chopped up 90s R&B samples. A year later, that same electronic innovator shocked the world by revealing himself to be a traditionalist, releasing an intimate self-titled debut album featuring sparse piano in place of beats and his vocals entirely untreated. It was a revelatory move that he built on with subsequent albums overgrown, the color in anything, and 2019's assumed form. In addition to his own work, Blake has proven himself to be a genius collaborator with credits on some of the 21st century's defining records, including Beyonce's Lemonade, Kendrick Lamar's Damn, and Frank Ocean's Blonde. Whether it's Jay-Z or JPEG Mafia, James Blake has been right in the middle of it all. This week sees the release of Blake's fifth studio album, Friends That Break Your Heart. Here he steps away from the immediacy of writing about romantic relationships, as he has done previously in both warm and desolate tones, looking more widely at relationships with others in his life and attempting to come to terms with them all. It's a collection of reflective songs that captures an artist who has arrived at a new stage in both his life and creativity. Last month, the faders David Renshaw spoke with Blake about friends that break your heart and why you rarely hear a breakup song about a friendship. Life is not the same, which is quite a heavy song about losing a friend. I was wondering, were you nervous about approaching the subject and the emotions in that it elicits in you when you started making it? Yeah, I should say, slightly embarrassingly, I wrote an Instagram post about it. It was this feeling of, well, I'm supposed to promote this single, but I don't feel like doing that uh, because this song has just made me feel all sorts of ways and and it coming out has just sort of feel like it's brought everything back up. But the wording I used was something like, you know, losing a friend is hard. And what I didn't anticipate was that everybody would assume that that friend was dead. And that's not actually what I meant. Okay, this is something I wanted to talk about. And I, I thought you meant a breakup, like a friendship breakup. Good, because I got a lot of condolence messages. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> I just basically had to ignore them. I had my thought changed by people's reaction, thinking, "Oh no, I've I've got this wrong. It's it's something a bit more serious." So, so what we're saying we're saying it is that kind of friendship split. It's a breakup with a friend, you know, of a, a certain number of years. You know, like someone who's just so central to your life, and uh, it's hard. There's no kind of protocol for it. I was always told, you know, and I say this in the song "Friends That Break Your Heart," and they tell you. Only love can break you the more, the more you care. What I'm trying to say is like, I just grew up with the, maybe it was the unspoken knowledge or maybe I inherited it from 
society or whatever, that it's romantic relationships that can break your heart. Anything outside of that is kind of fair game, really. It's, it's just, you know, just take it on the chin. I've actually had my heart broken in friendship far more times than, than in r- romantic relationships. And I think that has been one of the themes of this album is to, is to actually talk about that and to say that, I mean, there are love songs on this record, but the ones about heartbreak are not about romantic relationships. And I think, you know, that's kind of unusual in a way and sets this album apart from some of my others. In your experience, does that kind of um, the heartbreak from a friendship, does it feel different to a romantic pain? If I'm honest, I haven't experienced heartbreak, not what my friends describe as romantic heartbreak. I've, I've kind of been the one to leave relationships in the past. I can say that doesn't feel great, but what people describe to me as romantic heartbreak, I'm not sure if I've experienced that. And I think because of that, here's me with a slightly different angle on it. But, you know, whatever it is, it fucking hurts. And I was definitely, when I wrote that song, I was in that headspace and there's a little bit of frustration and anger in there and then there's also acceptance and there's there's love and there's, oh, I tried. I'm okay. No, I can drive myself. I've been sobered by my time on the shelf and I've been known. I've been ostracized like Say What You Will, which is the first single you released from the album, that's kind of about acknowledging your own worth outside of other people. And there's a, there's a quote that you gave around the release of that song, which is, comparison really is the thief of joy. Can you tell me about your journey to, to reaching that point? If, if indeed you have reached that point, I'm not sure if that's the case. I don't know if I've 100% completed that game, but I feel, I feel as if I reached the boss level of it last year and maybe there's some side quests still to clean up i have definitely contended with that feeling a lot in the past and i think moving to la probably didn't help because <laughs> everybody is so you know driven by success and and uh it's a work town it's a very success obsessed and financially obsessed place as well as being a beautiful wonderful healing place uh it's kind of a weird paradox uh, i think la but yes it certainly can rub off on you if you're surrounded by people who are on paper doing better than you uh in any environment it could be in la it could be in reading do you know what i mean it's like it doesn't matter i think the the point of the video was to say however successful you get there'll always be someone who can elicit that kind of feeling in you especially interesting to hear that coming from someone is who from the outside is as successful as you are. A lot of people might think, oh, well, if I had those achievements, I would move past this. It's not the way it works, is it? No, it isn't. And I thought the same thing. <laughs> so I can say for sure that it's it's in the mind. And I think we, unfortunately, have grown up. I mean, certainly I have in my generation, you know, the, the younger end of the millennial generation have, have kind of grown up, you know, with Instagram coming into our lives at a quite a crucial point, even back to Facebook. Like I can remember when feelings of comparison started started kind of ruining 
people's experiences pretty acutely, actually. I, I think I remember the year even. I think it's an aspect of human nature in a way, but it's just been exacerbated so much uh, in the last five to 10 years. I don't necessarily have a solution to it. I just have thoughts on it. I think it's something that if you consciously tackle it, um, it can be overcome, especially with the mute button on uh, Instagram. I read that the jumping off point for Say What You Will was a routine by the comedian Neil Brennan. I wonder if you could tell me a bit about that and what it brought out in you as well. Yeah, he showed me his new special. It's incredible. I related so much to it that I, I ended up writing a song pretty much immediately after after reading it. I think me and Neil have some shared experiences and, and I think at the time I was trying to write a song for the end of the show. I think he asked me to write a song for the end and I, and I said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And then I wrote Say What You Will. And then I said, oh, sorry, Neil, I wasn't able to write a song actually because actually it was just too good and I needed to put it on my album. <laughs> but no, no, he, he understood. And then I ended up doing some music for it anyway. Um, but so, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the kind of origin story of this song. It's interesting to hear you working with a comedian and, you know, kind of taking inspiration from comedy. You're a funny guy. I think that comes across in your press and your social media. Do you feel it comes through in your music at all? Is humour kind of something that's important to you when you're writing? I think more and more I want my real personality to come out in the lyrics of what I'm saying. You know, it's, I think my real personality maybe always has, but I, more in a, in a three-dimensional sense. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I think I'm, a, I'm at my least funny when I'm trying to be funny. And I think when I feel pressure to be funny. I mean, if you've got comedian friends, which I do, like when I first became friends with a comedian, I think my first instinct was to try and make them laugh. So, you know, to feel some kind of um, affirmation through doing that. And it's like, that's like coming up to me and enthusing about Logic Pro. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it, I can do it. It's not the conversation I want to have. <laughs> you know, I want to talk about something else. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think with, with music, it's like, you don't want to be too on the nose with humor sometimes. I think Power On was one of the first songs where I felt like something I'd actually say in real life, you know, like it wasn't poetry. It was just, let's go home and talk shit about everyone. That's something I've said. It came out in the moment. It was like an improvised lyric. It wasn't something I wrote down on my phone, scrutinized, and then thought, okay, this is, this is good enough to be in the song. It was like, I just sang it on the mic and then was like, oh, that's an interesting, that's, that's quite funny. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. Like, like I like the video for So We Will. I like, I, the fact that it's funny is just makes me really happy. I was playing it to my friends and they were laughing. And I was like, this is something I haven't had before in my music. Like, I, I'm, I'm so heavily known for making music, you know, about depression or kind of delving deep into feelings. And, 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 and that's great as well because, you know, that's part of my life. But the short answer is as long as I'm not trying too hard. When you say that you're kind of known for making music about depression or perhaps, you know, not, not the most lighthearted subjects always or sounds, you know how an actor can be typecast and they kind of feel like they need to move against that and, and do something different so that they break out of that cycle. Is that something that plays in your mind at all? I think I've come to understand music in a slightly different way rather than what I'm kind of expected or obligated to do. I think it's more to do with what is my imprint on the world, you know, like what is my um, my emotional dna that that resonates when i sing what is my resonance on earth you know, you know what i mean you know like trying to fight against that at any time in my career has always just led to 
shit songs, basically, regardless of what I think I should do or what people are expecting. I think the best thing to do is whatever I'm sort of broadcasting, whatever frequency I'm broadcasting that month or that year, just has to be the way the music sounds, and that's fine. Uh, I can accept that. You know, I, c- I can intellectually be like, okay, today I'm going to wake up and make a Gabba tune, or intellectually I've got this idea for a, a, a pop song that goes like this, and it has this kind of instrumental. But when I actually sit down and write it, the only thing that's going to feel right is how I feel in that moment. So I just try and uh, go with the path of least resistance, and that's worked for me. One thing I have noticed is that some of my best shit has happened at four in the morning when I'm tired and and I haven't haven't got any thoughts in my brain. That happened with Retrograde and it happened with You're Too Precious. This album was written and recorded since the pandemic and you also released two EPs last year, a, a covers EP and a slightly more dance music orientated, a bit of a throwback almost to some of your early material. So it seems from the outside like you've been prolific this last 18 months. I wondered how your creativity has been affected by this time in history? I don't know, man. It's going to be interesting to look back because I don't know if you've noticed, but I think a lot of people are putting out their worst shit at the moment. Because <laughs> it's, it's been boring, you know. Like Maybe it's me as well. I think we're all doing it. No, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of kidding, really. But it's like music overall, just the whole industry, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have been hugely impacted by this and and the general sonic imprint of everything we hear is going to be affected and some of it is sounding genuinely inspired and and maybe this is the same kind of ratio as as any other time in human history but i do feel that the insecurities and the you know like they're not necessarily fuel for the fire of creativity insecurities and depression and the things that come with you know, most musicians aren't weren't able to make music during the quarantine in the, in a way they'd like to. So their purpose, generally being taken away, is has been pretty difficult on it on a lot of the people I know. Being a creative person, going on tour and all that kind of stuff, and then suddenly all of that stops, uh, and you have to like reckon with who you actually are outside of the music. And my theory is that while a lot of people assume that, you know, being suddenly very anxious and very whatever and, and maybe falling into a depression, which is what a lot of people have happened to a lot of people, is good for creativity. I don't think it is. And I think uh, it leads to self-doubt. It leads to second-guessing music. It leads to cynical ideas of what you should be doing. And that the, the, these things all happen in my mind. And I had to fight really hard for this record to not end up sounding uninspired. There's a lot of songs that didn't make this record that just were thought experiments, you know, because I, I thought I should be doing one thing and wasn't sure. I'm a pretty productive person when it comes to music, but it's not that easy, I think. Um, it hasn't been. When you say you had to come to some sort of reckoning with who you are outside of the music, what conclusions did you kind of come to? Well, you know, what are we without our sort of raise on their tray, you know. So if you've been rewarded for doing this thing over and over again, and it's your m- main source of approval, your universally recognized purpose amongst you and your friends and you and the world. Although actually I'm quite lucky because my girlfriend, I don't think she would give a shit if I wasn't a musician. I, I think that's the 
That's always been our relationship. I'm not James Blake in my household, you know, so I'm very lucky to have that. But in terms of my relationship with the rest of the world, it's like, it's difficult to suddenly not be that moniker anymore, even though, you know, the world continues and it's not like I just stopped, it stopped existing. But I think we all had to a little bit reckon with, okay, so I'm not really in touch with anyone now. Where does that leave me if I don't have this job that I've been focusing all my time on? You know, aside from just like making sure I'm secure and financially secure and just generally circumstance and that my family's safe and healthy and all that stuff. After all of that, then you go, okay, what the fuck am I doing? You show down, show down, you bring me down. Don't you have a clue about where my mind is right now? You say you love me, is it real? But do you fantasize about the things you really wanna feel? I know you fantasize about the life you really wanna build. Know your eyes are watching God, baby, my eyes are hidden in the hills. Your first mistake was home. There's a number of collaborators on the album, which I think collaboration has become something you are particularly known for and, and, and thrive in that environment. I wondered if we could maybe talk about Scissor. What made her the right collaborator for the track Coming Back that she appeared in? We did a session with um, me, Scissor, and Stara and uh, Don Maker. And we made it in one night. Um, the, the core melodies and lyrics uh, we laid down in, in one evening and then it took me I mean that song wasn't necessarily going to be on the album for a while because you know I, I sent a, a version of the record to my label and they were like um have you got anything else <laughs> <laughs> I was like oh yeah you know what no I do but um I've never been able to finish this one I think it could be great I just uh no it's not it's not exactly how it happened but there were there was definitely a, a moment of like the record that I originally submitted didn't fully feel balanced. I don't know, it's hard to describe it. I went back to what I had and I had a bigger track pool than I'd, than I'd sort of drawn from. And um, I found this track again and, and me and everyone at my house, were I was playing it and people were like, you should, you should finish that. And I was like, yeah, I've got a song with Scissor. I should finish that, shouldn't I? <laughs> It took a while, and, and also the reason I hadn't finished it until that point was because I wanted to do her justice so badly that I was afraid of the song a little bit. It wasn't sounding right, and I sent her one thing, and it like was a bit weak, to be honest, the thing I sent over, and I was like, ah, oh, wish I hadn't sent that. And she was nice about it, but I was like, I need to smash this out of the park production-wise, or else it's just not going to work. She's too precious and great to, to be on anything less. So I spent a while trying to figure out how to support us both and give her the entry I wanted her to have and to like the structure of the song to like feel satisfying. Uh, and, and until it did that, then it, it wasn't going to make the record. So, you know, eventually we got there. Um, and now it's like easily one of my favorite songs on it. So when it comes to collaboration on your own albums, not, not kind of people you're working with separately, what are you looking for in a collaborator at this point in your career? Uh, I'm just looking for someone open and available. It's just someone with free time. <laughs> yes, uh, this is my, yeah, it's like a Tinder bio. I, I like people who are interested in the Sonics as well, like interested in experimenting and 
seeing what we could do that's new that people might not expect or or even just someone who's just quite vulnerable and 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 just happy to go with the flow of something i don't generally need much control in that situation i i i find letting it just take its course has always led to the best collaborations really and most importantly i don't want it to be some disconnected pro do you know what i mean it's like i want it to be a connected process where you are actually talking about the music and it's not like sometimes you can you can feel like it's more of an industry situation where it's like his 16 bars this is where you go no that doesn't feel like collaborating to me but i mean i'm particularly interested in your collaboration with producers because obviously you're known as a producer yourself so you've got kind of Metro Boomin, who you've worked with a few times. He's on Foot Forward. You've worked with Take a Day Trip on Life Is Not The Same. Could you talk to me a bit about the point in time that you, or just how you go about working with other producers and, and when you feel they're needed? Well, they're not needed because I can just do, I can just make songs myself. But, you know, it's, it's like a, in a relationship, I don't want to be needed. I want to be wanted, you know. I want to just have an idea that someone just likes and then I can just give it to them and like step away. I mean, as a producer, it's, that's a that's a wonderful scenario, where where I go, here's a bunch of ideas, and then they're like, okay, it's like an a la carte menu. I'll, I'll take that and I'll have that with a side of that, and then I can just back off and allow the music to happen, and and they can use their engineer and just do their thing. That's a really lovely situation, especially with somebody you trust, because you you know you're like, well, I know that they're going to do the best thing. For the song with that and i think that's what day trip and metro both did with me they just kind of went here's some really great ideas see what you can do with that and and uh, brought it into my world and 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 made it work for the record another thing that struck me about this new album that's interesting is that um your partner jamila jamil who a lot of people may know she's credited on a number of the songs same goes for uh, assume form the 2019 album and you kind of talked a little bit about her role. I wondered if you could tell me, like, specifically what what she brings to the to the album process, because it, it seems like a really interesting dynamic that is maybe not talked about the, the role of partners in album creation. I think her being a partner or not is sort of irrelevant, really, because her role is as a producer in the same way as any other producer on the record. I think I recognised pretty early on that that's what she was doing and therefore just gave her that credit because the alternative is what has happened historically, which is that, you know, if you've got a partner, it might be that a musician is um, meets somebody who's also very musical and that person has some great insight into that, into that musician because they're with them all the time. They can feel their instincts and when they're sticking to them. But beyond that, when they actually have some musical skill and know how to produce, you know, actually can produce, those partners have often gone uncredited just because it would be awkward. The label don't, you know, what, I don't know. It's like John, John, um, uh, <laughs> why have I forgotten the name of a Beatle? <laughs> John, John Lennon? <laughs> yeah, I keep thinking John Legend. <laughs> um, so, It'd be a very different band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, John, there's a there's an interesting interview with John Lennon about crediting Yoko because I think she, I believe she wrote Imagine and she wasn't credited because potentially the band or the managers or the label didn't want that to happen because it was weird. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not weird, you know. And obviously that was a long time ago. And then John later came out and said it, 
um, I think, and 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 cleared it up because I think he felt bad about it, which you know, fair play. I think that happens a lot. I've spoken about it before on Twitter and and stuff like that. Yeah, because you did speak out about that in in that moment. That's kind of what I was hoping to tap into a little bit. That idea of you know, at what at what point your involvement warrants a credit. We all see these co-writes and executive producer, and they don't necessarily always mean what you envisage they mean. And and where that envisaging comes from is perhaps a, a gendered idea of what people do in the process. Is that something that you sort of see changing anytime soon? Um, maybe. Maybe. I mean, it's up to the individuals. The problem is the the nature of production has changed over the years, right? So not just the fact that women often go uncredited for a lot of things. It's it's not just, and, you know, in order to get their proper credit, have to go under male pen names and, and all sorts of shit historically. Not just that, but but I think production has become a very hazy gray area over the last 10 years where, or even 20, 30 years, where the idea of the producer used to be someone who would shape the process and take a band, for example. And, it, you know, it obviously uh, it's also to do with the fact that mu- the way people make music has changed. So let's say, let's take a traditional band setup. You've got a producer who isn't playing instruments uh, and is mostly sat in the control room by the mixing desk, just kind of being like, can you play it a bit more like this? Or, you know, can we try it at this tempo? Can we, uh, can you give us another take? You know, it's like stuff like that. And kind of just being a curator of the situation, maybe a producer's job could even extend to like emotional management, you know, and and like um, Brian Eno is famous for that. Um, And lots of great producers are famous for actually managing the emotions sometimes of the, the artists they're working with to help them get through the process because, you know, that's part of it. And then, you know, production and the idea of what being a producer was uh, changed over the years as it became, essentially, the, the word producer has become somebody who makes a beat on a laptop and plays it over an auxiliary cable and someone sings over it, which is... <laughs> fine but the other type of producer still is a producer so we've got we've got all these different types of producer now uh you've still got someone who sits at the back on the couch just going what do you think of that should we try that again who, who's completely hands off and who helps restructure things but is restructuring arrangement like is it production is me like, i've got a production credit right now where i've basically sung on the thing done a background vocal and they're giving me additional production. It's like, am I a paid musician who came and just did a vocal, or am I a producer? Because currently I'm a producer, but I didn't fucking do anything. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do any production. But is my vocal a production? Is my vocal being on that song and the way I did it, is that now production? So it's, it's so confusing. So when I'm allocating production credits, what I'm essentially doing now is, is saying, this person either brought an idea that changed the makeup of this song and or, or like the in, in terms of the production dressed it a certain way or, or brought an idea that that made it feel or sound a certain way or helped me do that uh, or they played something that contributed to the production and it's important that's how that kind of how I divvy up production and if I'm divvying up writing that's where it also gets confusing because sometimes producers are getting writing splits 
and listed as writers when actually what they did was maybe make a decision on the production. <laughs> so it gets really confusing. So then it's like, well, okay, so you came in and said, we need string. I think we, sh we should put some strings here. That totally changed the song. And then after that, we wrote an extra part for the song because the string sounded so good, we wanted to add another section. It's like, well, okay, so you then influenced the writing process with that, with that decision, which makes you kind of a writer. That's where like it's really murky at the moment. People just have to kind of accept there's a lot of just like, yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> or no, I won't take that. You know, it's like it's up to you, depending on what you'll accept and what you're what you are content with. If you feel like you're being remunerated fairly, uh, it's really just trying to be fair and trying to make everyone happy. So I guess we're getting to kind of a more democratized place with that stuff anyway. And I think that regardless of who you are, you know, you should be getting what it is you, you, you contributed. You're the famous last words I wish I never That I wish I never started That I wish I'd had time to You're taking the album on tour later this month. How are you feeling about getting back out there and playing shows again? Great, to be honest. It felt really strange initially to book shows. I mean, really, I was like, what's a show? It felt really surreal. Who am I? <laughs> what do I do? That's kind of how it felt. And then as the t you know, we started rehearsing and stuff, and then I, I sort of reconnected with, I was like, oh, this is what I do. Oh, yeah, it's been so long. And uh, now I'm really looking forward to it. I'm just, you know, once you start putting the building blocks together and you start seeing certain sounds come together and like, we really, really think about our show and how the, the music is reproduced. It takes a while and it's a really in-depth process. And we've actually videoed it this time. I was like, I want people to see how much effort we put into this shit and how, how we, because we don't do anything with computers or whatever, you know, we don't, we don't, sync anything we don't have any ableton shit running in the background to like play a bunch of parts that we that we can't play because we don't have enough hands like we don't do anything like that we just play everything live you know like on i'm so blessed your mind there's an arpeggiator that's crazy and currently i'm trying to program it on this this modular sequencer because i want to actually we could just launch the sample but i want to play it live like i actually want it to be playing on a synth live so it's stuff like that, and that thing took me like two hours to program because it's so finicky and and um, you know granular. So yeah, man, it's it's like then there's moments like that, and then there's moments where songs come together and you just feel it so organic and and beautiful. And I don't know, there's no other experience like it really. So really excited. I'm also just looking forward to seeing people. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing fans. I'm looking forward to seeing all these people who've been listening to me over the years and and who give me the license to do it all uh, in the first place. So I, it's been so long. And if I'm honest, that's the thing that feels most surreal is like seeing that many people in front of me, I'm not even sure how I'm going to react. And also, like, I just think, you know, in lots of ways, this has been a new era for me. And, uh, you know, I feel very light about it. It's great. I actually found the Assume Form era 
pretty difficult. It was at the end of, I don't know, it's like we go in cycles in life, don't we, where we're excited about things and then we, and then we you know, that maybe it's a couple of relationships in our life kind of like putting strain on our enjoyment of something or we've been doing something the same way for so long that we need a refresh. Like that's kind of how I felt around that time. And, and now it's all been refreshed and, and I'm just, I can feel that feeling of excitement um, rushing back. So that's great. You probably wouldn't be able to hear it in my voice because I speak in a monotone, but I'm uh, deeply excited. I think that's the perfect place to leave uh, the interview. Thank you so much for your time. And your excitement, your, your, your muted excitement. Thank you, man. And uh, yeah, thanks for the support. That was James Blake talking to The Fader's David Renshaw. Blake's new album, Friends That Break Your Heart, is out this Friday, October 1st, via Republic Records and Polydor Records. Our engineer is Tony Giambroni, and our associate producer is Salvatore Mackey. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. Remember to follow The Fader interview wherever you listen to podcasts and keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Fader interview. Goodbye until then.